0: We're into Romans 8 now and this passage before us, verses 12 through 17, contains one of the dearest truths that Christians have and that is our adoption into God's family, that we belong to God for good, it's permanent and to belong to God, the passage teaches to belong to God is to be led by the Spirit of God. Notice in the text that's capital S Spirit of God and that this will involve both intimacy with God the Father and suffering with God the Son. These will be our two considerations today. Most of the time in my sermons we run on two tracks and that's what we'll think about today. Many of our neighbors, people that we live next door to, people that we share A community with people that we work out with uh, in fitness places, uh, people that we go to the same restaurants uh, with. Many of our neighbors, if you take the time to to probe them, uh, will indicate an interest in spirituality. Spirituality is uh, kind of in. Uh, people recognize there's an, as an immaterial aspect to being human, uh, that, that a human being is, is flesh and blood, but also there's the, the spiritual aspect of us. And in fact, uh, a lot of times uh, people wonder, you know, well, well, how do I get on the topic? Uh, you can simply ask somebody, do you have any spiritual beliefs? You've put the ball in their court. You've asked them to share with you what they think and believe. And that's a very simple question to get uh, Uh, to get a a conversation going? Do you have any spiritual beliefs? Well, when we speak of spirituality as Christians, it's not DIY, do it yourself, as you'll find it being for many of our neighbors. When we talk about spirituality, it's what we have been brought in on specifically by God taking us into his family. Uh, We answer this consideration of what is spirituality spiritual, do we have any spiritual beliefs and, and, and if somebody says that back to you, do you have any spiritual beliefs and you, you say, yeah, I, I believe that I've been adopted uh, into God's family and you'll go right to, to, to a, a core truth, a core value, if you will, uh, that we hold as, as Christians. What we're in on, what we've been brought in on, this passage tells us as you look at it is that God the Spirit takes up residence in us that's mysterious. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't get fully how that, how that works, but he does. The person of God, the Father, adopts us as his children. We, we can understand that more because we're, we're familiar with adoption and how that works. The person of the, God, the Son, shares his sufferings and his glory both with us, and we're curious as to what we're in for with both. One sounds good, the other not so good. And if you remember nothing else from this uh, sermon today, uh, if your eyes cross and your heart hurts when you try to, or your mind hurts, I should say, when you try to wrap it around uh, the Trinity, at least remember this, you're, you're in on something really good. Can you remember that? <laughs> uh, by what God has uh, done for us, by his grace. But the best way to explain the Spirit of God With brevity, well, in fact, we just sang it. Uh, If you look at the words uh, asking the Holy Spirit to instruct us, the second line, bring the presence of the risen Lord. Uh, In essence, that's what Jesus himself said the Holy Spirit's ministry is about, about mediating the presence of Jesus to us. Uh, Jesus said this in John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify me by taking from what is mine and declaring it to you. And so in in brevity, to explain the Spirit of God, you think of him as your guide into all things truth, all things Jesus. And if you put Jesus' words in John 16 with what we have here in Romans 8... What does the Spirit of God declare to us? Jesus said he will declare everything that's of of me to you. And what is it he declares to us, Romans 8, is that we belong to the family of God. It's a marvelous thing to consider. I know we're used to it, but we need to to be refreshed in this and what this means. God the Father has adopted us. Uh, He has made us uh, co-inheritors with God the son and thus there is as we've already seen in this passage in verse 1 in chapter 8 there's no condemnation awaiting us when we die belonging to God's family all that awaits us is glorification on the other side of the grave there's no condemnation over our life that's beautiful God isn't mad at you His his wrath towards your sin, which is his hatred of what hurts us and and how we hurt others in our sin. Uh, That's been been completely assuaged in the the death of Christ for us. God didn't have to do any of this for us or, or for anyone else for that matter. In fact, he said to Israel through Isaiah, my glory I give to another Except when you come into the New Covenant context, that's exactly what he's doing with us in Christ. He's sharing his glory. It's a a different time. He didn't have to expand his family to include you and me. He doesn't have to call us his children, but he did, he does, and we love him for it. And. By the way, thinking back moments ago to what I was saying about, you know, how we talk with our neighbors, don't underestimate your neighbor's longing for something beautiful as well as something meaningful to believe in. A lot of times in our zeal, a lot of our training and how to share our faith is is pretty sterile, uh, frankly, and it's it's a lot about facts and I want to convey this to you and you'll listen and maybe you'll believe. uh, in our zeal to give answers, sometimes we, we overlook how the gospel answers the human need for beauty by, by giving us this bouquet of, of grace. And one of the, these flowers are all over scripture, but one of our, our most beautiful flowering truths is that the one who guides us into all truth is called here, verse 15, the spirit of adoption. And when you think about the names of God, names and titles for a triune God, all through Scripture, my favorite name of his might be right here in verse 15, the Spirit of Adoption. In this sermon, I'm going to emphasize two realities as we have them in this text. The two realities are the effects of being led by the Spirit of God. One is, as I mentioned earlier, intimacy with God the Father, And the other is suffering with God the Son. You see that part of it in verse 17. But these two realities are the effects of being led by the Spirit of God. Our belonging to God is set. You belong to God by way of option. And belonging to God is being led by the Spirit of God, verse 14. And this involves both intimacy with God the Father, the King of the universe you get to refer to as Abba, Father, and all the closeness that brings with it, and suffering with God the Son, the one who bore our sorrows and our griefs as well as our sin. So the first consideration of two today, our being led by God the Spirit, this language in verse 14, our being led by God the Spirit involves intimacy, with God the Father. And of course, this intimacy is all wrapped up in this word adoption. You see it there in verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I, I don't get asked this very often, but occasionally I do get asked, have been asked, what one word would I use to, to summarize the heart? of Christianity can you boil it all down into into one thing you come into my office there's a library full of books what's the point what in essence is all of this about and trying to communicate and of course we can never uh, boil it down to just one thing but if it could be if you pegged me to say what does is the one thing I think it's adoption. J.I. Packer uh, wrote in his uh, classic book, Knowing God, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. He's right about that. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better, not that it will not be better, it cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And so the Holy Spirit of God in our text, verse 15, is called the spirit of adoption. Because it's because God is an adoptive father that we can call him Abba Father. Abba means he he wants us to know him. He wants us to draw near to him. He wants us close. He wants us to experience his love. He wants to share his happiness with us even if you're not particularly happy today or if you have to fight for joy. I do too. But the plumb line in that is that we get to call the king of the universe our Abba, Father. When I was in Israel uh, back in the month of May, uh, of course, uh, Hebrew is, is spoken there and um, I was able to pick out a few words and read a few words from my uh, training at Dallas. They make you take four semesters of Hebrew uh, at Dallas. It, it, it's um, Nothing that's, I'm not fluent uh, by any stretch, but I could pick out a few things. And as I would uh, occasionally listen to children talk to their uh, parents, you would hear Abba. And I remember one uh, night in our hotel, we had this incredible spread uh, in the dining room and there was a child standing in front of the dessert tray and Abba, you know. And he was obviously asking if he could have something from the dessert tray. And dad said no in Hebrew. And of course that ruins my illustration. Uh, but actually it doesn't. Because what God says yes to is not everything we want for ourselves. Uh, and this can be hard for us sometimes. Because look, if you really want something for yourself, you, you, you want it. You think that's Something you need, something you want, and it's, it's hard to be told no. It's hard to be told wait. It's hard to not feel like you hear anything from the Lord. And, and a lot of us have experienced that and experience it still. But what God says yes to is everything he wants for us in Jesus and everything that Jesus has promised to do and to be for us. It's, it's all yes. I mean, Paul even says it this way over in the Corinthian letters. These are not unfamiliar truths to a lot of us in the room, but we need to taste again their sweetness. Our adoption as sons and daughters of God is really an incredible thing. It's the best thing we have going for us. Our gospel is a gospel of adoption, which is why when you look at the text and you look at verse 13, for if you live according to flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Because our gospel is a gospel of adoption, this is where the want-to comes from. Remember we have talked about obedience from the heart, chapter 6, verse 17. We've talked about that the last two or three weeks. We've talked about serving in the new way of the Spirit, chapter 7, verse 6, I think it is. And you get into chapter 8, and you get this in verse 13. And, and with that in the background, we realize, hey, with, with what God has done for us, you know, I, I want to put to death the deeds of the body. And what he means by deeds of the body, I talked a little bit about this last week, is, is not your flesh and blood person, not, the, not that your, your earth suit, as it were, is, is a bad thing. Jesus took one on himself. Flesh is not bad in that sense. But flesh or body, flesh slash body, as it's used interchangeably in our text, is about fallen human nature. Our draw to sin, our desire for sin. But with the living spirit of God within us, we also want... To put to death those things that dishonor God, those lesser and baser uh, drives, uh, those ways that we look at the world and, 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 and fear. Jesus talked a lot about don't fear or the, or the ways that we uh, try to exempt ourselves from avenues of service, etc. and so on. And we will, as a son or daughter of God, we will put to death the deeds of the body as he refers to it here. But how will we do that? To answer that, let me take you into our own adoptive experience. When we were adopting 11 years ago, Lynn and I, a flurry of decisions come at you when you step uh, into that consideration. And in an effort not to feel overwhelmed by the process of adopting a child, uh, we decided we would take things one yes at a time. You just sort of walk into this experience, and, and you, all suddenly you, you hear about a child, and you start uh, hearing uh, about uh, all the things you've got to make decisions for. And uh, our live by statement became one yes at a time. And it wasn't that we wanted an out. We set ourselves to adopt, and we knew we would, but we didn't want to get ahead our of ourselves. It's real easy to do, and that's why we adopted this uh, statement, one yes at a time. Now, as it was after we said our first yes, the yes has just cascaded from there, and we've never looked back. It felt right all the way once we put that ore in the water, but I want to Take that from, from our own experience in real time, uh, actual adopting a, a child in our case. And, and I want to put that into to what we're talking about here in, in verses uh, 13 and 14. As you look at verses 13 and 14, this emphasis on putting to death the deeds of the body, verse 13, that is our, uh, what, what emanates from our fallen human nature, which is in opposition to God. Every thought, word, deed you have that you know, you know in your spirit. Uh, lowercase s, that part of the human being that is, that, that it's your conscience and your, your knowledge of, you know, is not right. The good things that you refuse to do, not just the, the bad things that you might do, just to put it in a simple uh, contrast. But sometimes we make this in verse 13, put to death the deeds of the body, we make this uh, an all or nothing all at once. Same with verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, full stop. But what I want to show you in verses 13 and 14, are these are present active tenses. Now, school's underway. It's September. Some of you kids are in English class. Um, don't let your eyes glaze over, but this is actually pretty cool. Watch this, kids. Verse 13, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. That's what present active tense conveys, ongoing action. Same in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God. Or like, well, why didn't they just translate it that way? Well, that's, that's why they put me in seminary, so that I would come and, and show you that uh, there's nuances within these texts. No, I mean, you see it, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you're putting to death the deeds of the body, it's, it's the same in the verse part of verse 13. If you're living according to the flesh, it's, it's continuous action in the tense uh, of, of this language. Th- that means that there ought to be ellipses at the end of these uh, uh, verses, like the dot, 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 that's an ellipsis. At the end of verse 13, it's ongoing. End of verse 14, it's ongoing. Uh, we are adopted into God's family, full stop. The exclamation point even. But belonging means being led by the Spirit of God, owning His ownership of us in Christ's ongoing present active tense. Even our being called debtors. Look back up at verse 12, where we began this morning. Verse 12, brothers, we're debtors, not the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We're debtors, but we're also sons. Sons includes daughters in this context. And so while debtor, what does debtor convey, verse 12? It conveys obligation. But because as the context goes on, we're debtors who are also sons because we're children of God. The experience of this indebtedness to God is not you better live up to the name of Christ on you. It is rather grow into the name of Christ on you. You think about it in this context. We raise our children. And that's more about growth than it is about performance if you're a wise parent. You'll exasperate a kid if all it's about is his or her performance for you rather than their growth. There are certain things that kids are learning as they grow up learning ongoing there are certain struggles that are going to have there are certain attitudinal dispositions there are certain draws and impulsiveness and 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 things that that you see in them and if you take this sort of all or nothing stop it that's never going to happen again you're probably overbearing do you really expect from your child all or nothing obedience you're probably overbearing What we should expect is that our children learn to say yes to us, that they grow into this rather than live up to it. This chapter teaches that those led by the Spirit of God ongoing will be known by our yes to God. Even in the face of suffering, which we're coming to, but the way our yes works out is more like one yes at a time. By which I do not uh, mean we're giving ourselves freedom to balk at God, that we're always uh, keeping no as a live option. I don't mean that at all. But following Christ doesn't require uh, the mountaintop experience. It doesn't require the, the camp commitment. It doesn't require this point in time, stake in the ground, cape flapping in the wind behind you, super commitment. It requires growing growing into the name of Christ on us, growing into our inheritance in him. It's finding as you grow that your desires grow and expand to include desires for him. Now I want his way, I want his truth, I want his life. Even if I'm struggling with a certain temptation, the struggle is because I want what he wants for me. If there's no struggle, well, then either it's not really a temptation or uh, I, I'm, I, I don't know my own heart. Finding ourselves praying, make my desires fit your design, Lord. Our yes to God is, is the way that verse 16 works out. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, lowercase s, that we are children of God, our, our, our spirit being that, that immaterial part of human being. But often as it happens in a passage like this one, I know what happens because I've sat where you are. I've heard teaching all my life. I've been around Christians. We speak of the kind of experience of God Christians are supposed to have. We're supposed to put to death the deeds of the body in know, passage like this. And we, we take this all or nothing kind of approach, especially those of us who grow up pietistic which many of us did. Pietistic means you put this great emphasis on this valiant for truth, deep devotion, no turning back, no turning back, no turning back. How many times do you get to sing that, you know, hymn? Remember, if you grew up in the Baptist church, as I did, that's what you heard a lot. We think we're led by the Spirit of God to make this solemn declaration. We will do nothing from now on, but what God wants for us and from us for the rest of our lives because that's what Romans 8 teaches. And I'm not saying we don't have these times where we make the camp commitment, where we feel closer to God, our devotion spikes. Maybe I'm just speaking from my own experience here, and that won't be the first time probably or the last. But I look back on my sincere commitment pledges those times when I promised God it will be this way from now on Lord and never again another and I just didn't know my own heart well enough. I meant well. I'm glad I was seeking God not something else but as I came to know myself better, guess what? I got disappointed with myself. I failed. I found my devotion wasn't enough. I wasn't enough in my devotion and that made me feel all the more shame because I thought, well, by now, wherever now plotted on the continuum, I thought, well, by now, I, I, I should have put to death all the lesser, baser drives and, and deeds of the, of the fallen human nature with finality, no turning back. Don't I, don't I sing that every Sunday? I thought obeying God involved this one big yes. You know, whatever God wants, whenever he wants it from me, he'll get it because I'm all in. In fact, a lot of the ways that Romans 12 gets handled, and we'll get to Romans 12 eventually, you know, that that, that I put it all on the altar. It's called a living sacrifice. That means God does anticipate some crawling off and on. It's a living sacrifice. He knows us well. He knows that we will struggle. We, We confessed it this morning in Psalm 103. He realizes that we are dust. And what does Psalm 103 say? Remember when you, when, you read the, when it was read to us and we sang that as, the, as, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Those who fear him. Those who take him seriously. Those who relate to him in the way that responds to the call of God on our lives. We know that we've got to render obedience. We get it. And I thought being God involved this one big yes. I was all in and I was all in. But I was all in with a deceitful heart still. I was, I was all in with a self-righteous heart. The text does say we're debtors to God, verse 12, and this conveys obligation as I mentioned. And it fits in this context. What are children supposed to do? They're obligated to follow the lead of their parents. That's the job description of children. Well, as adopted sons and daughters of God, we have to go God's way when we're owning his ownership of us ongoing. This is what sonship, which again, it includes daughtership, but sonship is easier to say, so hear it inclusive. This is what sonship requires, that, that we will own his ownership of us. I said last week, God has always expected obedience from his people. He's always said, you're my person, now obey me. Always. In whatever uh, covenant arrangement, old or, or new. We are under the obligation to obey. This is what debtor, verse 12, communicates to us. We're under the obligation to obey. And in this context, adopt what's, what's being conveyed to us is that the natural children, you can think of the Jewish context, the old covenant law, well, well certainly I see that they were expected to obey, the adopted children are also expected to obey. And and furthermore, guess what? Jewish law made no provision for adoption. Greco-Roman law did. Who says God can't take something from pagans and, and turn it into something for himself? There was no concept in Jewish law of adopting. It's something that comes out of the Greco-Roman world. God takes something from the Gentile world and puts it in the heart center of the way he's going to relate to his people this side of the cross. We are adopted to be all in on God's family and so children, the point is children, whether they're natural children or adopted children, they're obligated to obey their parents and this side of the cross we will do that as the adopted children of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob our Father. But the motivation in forming this obligation is different this side of the cross. It comes out of sonship. Because the language here in verses 13 and 14 is present active tense. It's about continuous action. It communicates this ongoingness. It's less like one big yes at one shining moment of spiritual fullness. And it's more like the way this works out is one yes at a time. If we look at obedience as our obligation to render because of a point in time, stake in the ground, super commitment to God, that's very well intentioned and many through the centuries have admirably followed through on that, but our obedience is not just this thing we render to God all at once. Obedience is actually a thing that God is developing in us as we live and walk with him. And the development is usually process-intensive over time. And it can and will involve suffering. Developing our obedience will involve suffering with God the Son. This is our second consideration. And because we'll keep talking about this in the sermons to follow, I'll just give you a little bit on it this morning and we'll be done. Our being led by the Spirit involves suffering with God the Son. It involves intimacy with God the Father, a new relationship with God. It involves suffering with God the Son, as the, the way to his inheritance, to his glory. Verse 17. But note the context, verse 17 here, in. When we look at verse 17 and we say provided, and it says provided, or if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. We think of suffering as punishment, don't we? If you're suffering today, it's really easy to think God's mad at me. God didn't protect me. God didn't let this thing I wanted happen because he must be mad at me. He's sick of me. He's tired of my faults and flaws. Do you realize Jesus called his father Abba? Do you remember where we have that in the record of the gospel? The Garden of Gethsemane. Before he goes to take the punishment for sin in our place, he calls God in the garden, Abba, Father. If you're willing, you can take this cup from me. The only one who called God, Father, uh, called God the Father, Abba, he's the only one who, who, who suffered punishment in that. For the rest of us, there's no punishment. For the rest of us, suffering is never punishment. It is development. It's, it's how uh, God develops our faith, suffering for us this side of the cross, develops our resiliency, it develops our empathy, our trust, our love, our, our self-control, it even develops our, our intimacy with God the Father. Martin Luther uh, used to teach that God always gives us a reason to cry out to him, which doesn't make God the author of your pain, but he is an editor <laughs> He is making us better inside it. If you've ever suffered loneliness, for instance, so did Jesus. And what did he do with the loneliness? He he went to Abba. If you've ever suffered rejection, so did Jesus. And what did he do with his rejection? He sought out Abba. So So do we. Dallas Willard said something to the effect somewhere that Jesus not only substitutes himself in our place, which he does on the cross, but he also invites us into a crucified life. Verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, intimacy with God the Father, and identity with God the Son, who suffered not just on the cross, but also in the rejections of people. And when you think about the varieties of suffering, and there are varieties, illness, physical and mental, bereavement, moral dilemma. There can be suffering in that, trying to make the right decision. Broken children is suffering, poverty, tragedy, accidents, death. Jesus didn't suffer all of that in his life, but his life intersected with all of that and more. And he knew suffering firsthand and he tells us that we will too, especially in identifying with him, we will find that the world intersects with the way of Jesus in a cross-shaped way that is in conflict. And he may keep us out of some kinds of suffering, but other kinds he will meet us in. What we find happening throughout church history until we get to the late 20th century, you go up to the late 20th century, you find in church history is that sufferings of all kinds drove people toward God not away from him. That was always the experience of the church. There was lament, there was crying out for relief, there was the bewilderment of of what's going on here, why this time, why now, when does this let up, all of that. But until you get to about the late 20th century in the Western context and, and people begin to have this sense of control of life so that if I'm suffering, God is unworthy of me, he's not coming through for me and therefore I'm justified to turn my back and go the other way. Up until that point in church history, it's really an unprecedented thing what happened in the late 20th century on up to now. I mean, if I wanted to go, if I wanted to make a bunch of money, okay, all I need to do is have this great crisis of faith, decide I'm not gonna be an evangelical anymore, I'm not gonna believe in God anymore and write a tell-all book, all right? And I will uh, make a ton of money and uh, I'll embarrass everybody in this room and humiliate myself in the process. I'm not going to do that, by the way. I'm giving you a total hypothetical. Some of you are looking at me like, (laughs) whoa, where'd this come from? But that's the spirit of our times. I mean, people are looking for the deconversion story. And they want the evangelical insider who says, uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's all phony. Yeah, they're all a bunch of whatevers, you know. And I'm not going to do that. I'm fully in, by the way. But that's what's rewarded. It's this idea of leaving and leaving it all behind. And, and, and God didn't protect our family from this. And so he's unworthy of my service. And God didn't come through for this. And so I'm not going to give him anything. I'm mad at him, you know. And you've got to work through that. We all work through that at some level. I'm not saying you just skate through. Again, growth, growth, growth. And it has times of pain and growth. There's times of, uh, where you feel like you're, you're taking two steps uh, backward for the three you maybe took forward. You don't have to go seeking the suffering uh, that is at the, ex- the heart of, of Jesus' way and truth and life in conflict with the way of a fallen world. You don't have to go seeking it. It will come to you soon enough if, if it hasn't already. And you, know, you may not know initially what to do with it. And it may for a while be all lament before any kind of growth stems from it. You may never know why and understand. But Jesus' way to his inheritance, the point of the text, his way to his inheritance involved suffering. And if he suffered for his faithfulness to Abba Father, then don't be surprised if you encounter suffering as well. But the world doesn't have the last word in this. In fact, the last word in our text is glorified with him. That's where you get to hear, well done. That's where you get to enter into your inheritance. Everything you experience now that you don't want, we're promised, will get swallowed up in what you do want. Which is to behold the beauty and the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ unfiltered. And that's why as we go into the text next week, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, we are grateful for all that we've experienced in this service this morning and for how we have been shown through declarations from Old Covenant and New that your disposition toward us is as a father with his children. And Lord, we have life experience. We know that that relationship can go badly. It can go wrong. But in this case, the father is perfect, perfectly loving, perfectly forgiving, perfectly good, kind, perfectly patient. We never knew that with our earthly fathers as good as many of them were and are in this room but we get to know that with you and I thank you for the promises you've given the way you have lifted our, our chin this morning from this text to behold you afresh and anew as the one who loves us such that you would use a family term to describe us. You didn't have to. You could have dealt very clinically with us, very sterily with us, but we are told that we have had your love lavished upon us. And that is something to behold. And so Lord, we are, we are eager to know you better and where we are not for fear or for going for something for ourselves in sin that we won't seek from the savior, forgive us and help us in that weakness. Show us again and afresh and anew your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.